0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Van Maren Show. A series is out on Hulu called Mrs. America, and it tells vicious lies and smears pro-life hero Phyllis Schlafly, who passed away in 2016. Her daughter is going to join me to explain what that series got wrong and who her mother really was. That's coming right up. Stay with us. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and every week on this show, I try to discuss uh, issues that are important and fundamental to the culture wars to the war for life and for family. And on that note, uh, we have a donor at LifeSight News that has promised to match up to $120,000 for a monthly donors. So if you don't mind going over to LifeSightNews.com, you can click on the Frontlines 2020 tab and you can become a supporter of important life and family news as well. That's heading over to LifeSightNews.com and going to the Frontlines 2020 tab. Again, there's a matching donor that will ensure that your donation counts. For more. So, as I mentioned before, today's show I think is a very important one because, as we know, popular culture shapes the way we view people. If there's a biopic or a Hollywood movie about a specific figure, that film, that biopic, is likely to define who they are in the imaginations and in the minds of millions of people. Now, some of you might know that one of my greatest pro life heroes has always been a woman named Phyllis Schlafly. She's absolutely an unbelievable person, wrote 26 books. She passed away in 2016 at the age of of 92. I had the opportunity uh, uh, to meet her once, to interview her once. Uh, She told me that she had debated every major feminist but Gloria Steinem, uh, who never dared to debate her. Uh, She was fierce and phenomenal right to the end. She was elegant and beautiful even in her 90s. She was the first lady of the pro-life movement, the sweetheart of the silent majority. As uh, one author famously put it, and this film, uh, this 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 mini series, pardon me, Mrs. America attempts to essentially lie about her, smear her family, and destroy her legacy because they hate her for opposing abortion. And so, to clear the lies away, to to so everybody can understand why why you shouldn't watch the series, uh, and second of all, why the series is filled with lies, uh, her daughter. Anna Schlafly Corey agreed to come on and discuss uh, her mother's life and legacy, what the film gets wrong, and where you can go to find the true story of Phyllis Schlafly's life. So, without any further introduction from me, here's my conversation with Phyllis Schlafly's daughter. So, just to start off, uh, maybe you can explain to any of our younger listeners and viewers who don't know much about your mother, Phyllis Schlafly, who she was and a bit about her legacy.
1: I think it's a great opportunity to introduce this extraordinary life to people who are younger than I am. I was, you know, I was a young girl when all this happened in the 1970s. So anybody younger than I am would have missed this and missed it in history class because um, this isn't much talked about. I mean, right. here this woman, she came from nothing. She lived in a small town in flyover land. She never was elected to any office. She never was a, a gov- held a government position. And yet she had this enormous power and influence such that four years after her death, Hollywood wants to do a smear job on her.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's let's maybe talk a little bit about the the details of her life by looking at how they were misrepresented so that people get an idea of the real story I do think that somebody has to make an actual documentary about her life at some point because it, it is an it's an incredible story right your mother shows up in Ronald Reagan's Diaries while she was living even in her 90s Forbes was calling her one of the topmost 100 influential women in the United States of America and this is decades after the the battle over the Equal Rights Amendment had had come to an end but let's start off with with the equal rights amendment what was the equal rights amendment and how did your mother get pulled into the fight against the era and eventually become the face of the movement that beat the era
1: i think we have to go back a farther step and realize her core was her faith in god and it was her faith that formed all of her political beliefs and she didn't The movie tries to present her as this power-mad conniver. But no, it came from her core beliefs. Her faith in her Savior, Jesus Christ, formed everything that she thought politically. And her first taste of getting active was fighting communism and fighting the, the existential threat of the Soviet Union in the 1950s and 60s, and how important it was that the United States have a strong military defense to secure the liberties of the United States, because she saw communism as a godless threat to her security.
0: Well, what's interesting as well, so we go from, um, from um, her anti-communism, and she wrote a number of books with significant admirals. I believe she wrote 27 books um, throughout her life. But I noticed that even when with this miniseries, this alleged docudrama, it sort of jumps in. Uh, it's fully drama. It's fully (laughs) fictional. They make
1: up characters. They make up dialogue. They make up scenes. They had an agenda. There is nothing documentary about this. They declined to talk to the historian who wrote a book about my mother's work named Donald Critchlow, Mm -hmm. and it's called Phyllis Schlafly and Grassroots Conservatism. They didn't even want to talk to him. They wanted to make things up, and they did.
0: So here's a question uh, that I wanted to ask you, actually, because I'm sure you've read uh, the book by Carol Felsenthal, The Sweetheart of the Silent Majority. Uh, Yeah. And I read that book as recently as a couple of months ago. And throughout the book, chapter after chapter, she keeps on saying things like the feminists were so positive that Phyllis Schlafly couldn't be sincerely motivated. They were so positive that there had to be something cynical, uh, some sort of conspiracy at play, because they simply could not bring themselves to believe that a woman might totally reject their view of what liberation actually was. Now, basically... Yes, so the feminists,
1: the- you, you have to... They don't allow for diversity of ideas. If you don't believe them, then you have to be a pawn or puppet of somebody else. And that's one of the threads in this movie is that she was a puppet of, of men mm-hmm. who set her up to, to be the face of, of, of anti-feminism.
0: Well, the, the, the strange thing though is, so I read in one a mainstream media article that apparently Carol Feltonsall or I think I'm pronouncing her name right, the author of The Sweetheart of the South Majority, was one of the historical consultants on the film. And the only way that can be the case is if she's decided to abandon her previous research or if the filmmakers hadn't read that book because Carol's conclusion was lover or hater, Phyllis Schlafly, was who she was and believed what she believed and the film fundamentally says she didn't believe her own arguments and was very disingenuous. Do you have any idea what, what Carol Felsenthal thought of this film or how there can be such a disparity between what the book said and what the miniseries said?
1: Well, Carol Felsenthal is listed as an, a producer, an associate producer on the show. She, she did give advice. Her book was used. Uh, she, uh, she talked to the actors. She just, des- she described things. I mean, a lot of the, um, The the details that they got right obviously came from Carol Felsenthal and her voluminous notes from the 1970s when she was interviewing not only my mother, but most members of my family. The book she wrote, Sweetheart of the Silent Majority, is an excellent book and has a a real, uh, uh, you know, really showcases. But you see, Carol Felsenthal was a useful idiot for the agenda of this movie. She never involved herself to find out the message that they were going to take. So if you read the introduction to Sweetheart, Carol Felsenthal talks about how she chased down every rumor Mm -hmm. about Phyllis Schlafly being, or uh, uh, that she was um, racist or that she was aligned with racism or any of those things. She chased them all down and found out that they were all false allegations. What does the movie do? the movie tries to present her as aligned with racists. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the kind of, they had an agenda, and they, they used Carol Felsenthal's information, but they uh, re, they rejected her conclusions. Now, Carol Felsenthal has said, has written voluminously about how she uh, found Phyllis Schlafly to be a fascinating person, yeah. and she liked her personally, but she rejected her ideas, and she... Yeah she disagreed with her on every issue and that it just made her mad that Phyllis was so likable. And when she was was spouting these things that Carol didn't like.
0: But one of the, the the key deviations from Carol's book, which is why I was stunned to find out she was a historical consultant on, on this miniseries, is Carol specifically spends a couple of chapters talking about how the feminists were sure that the, your mother and father's marriage must have been terrible. She was sure the kids must have been neglected. But she says at one point in the book, even the neighbors who didn't like Phyllis admitted they had a wonderful family life, right? She's like, she couldn't find a single shred of evidence that the sort of relationships that end up showing up in the miniseries existed. And so they're either ignoring all of the research done on this issue, and this is the only personal biography of your mother that's ever been written, and I think we're due for for another one, but this is the only one that's been written so far. So the only evidence that they actually had got rejected entirely. And so I'm really wondering how, how, how they could square uh, claiming that they were using this book as a source with, the fact that they literally portray things that Carol writes have been discredited in the book. They claim as one of the sources.
1: Well, it's a question for Carol Felsenthal to answer because um, she didn't see a preview cop, uh, cut of the show. So the okay. question is, how does she feel about it now that she's seen it and how they twisted uh, her, her advice in the movie? I, you know, it's, I don't know how she feels because mm-hmm. um, she certainly agrees with the feminists, but she knows that the portrayal they do in the movie of Phyllis Schlafly is inaccurate and malicious.
0: Let's double back just a little bit. You talked about your mother as a, as a well-known anti-communist. Uh, and, you know, the film sort of jumps in just prior to her getting involved in the ERA fight because they don't want to talk about the fact that your mother already had a prestigious career prior to becoming involved in the fight against the ERA. It goes virtually unmentioned that, uh, what was it, three million copies of her book, A Choice Not an Echo, sold out of her garage uh, during the 1964 nomination race. Um, And she's credited, that book is credited with getting Barry Goldwater the nomination. And I always remember that George Will once said, uh, without Buckley, no National Review, without no National Review, no Goldwater, without no Goldwater, no Reagan, Without Reagan, no end to the Cold War. So Bill Buckley won the Cold War. And I thought, well, if you take what historians say about Barry Goldwater winning the nomination because of choice not an echo, you could also say, no Phyllis Schlafly, no Barry Goldwater, no Barry Goldwater, no Ronald Reagan, no Ronald Reagan, no end to the Cold War. So Phyllis Schlafly won the Cold War. All of this gets completely ignored uh, by, by, by the entire series. Well, I'm
1: not sure, We haven't, I haven't seen, I've only seen half of it. I'm, I'm seeing it with the public like everybody else. I didn't see a preview copy. Um, but why Phyllis Schlafly was a threat in the 70s and still a threat today is that she created the pro-family movement. She inspired women who had not previously been involved in the political scene, women who were uh, housewives, homemakers, uh, women in small towns women across the country who then decided that they their voice needed to be heard on these issues that affected their family and their future and that was the coalition that elected Ronald Reagan but because you could you can draw the line that the votes that Barry Goldwater didn't get in 1964 were the votes that uh, Ronald Reagan got in 1980 because of this new movement of women who were opposed to the feminist ideology.
0: So let's start with how did your mother get involved? in the fight against the Equal Rights Amendment? Because one of the things that's accurate is that she was primarily interested in anti-communism. She was primarily interested in in Republican politics and the internecine fights going on in the Republican Party. She was a conservative. She was against the establishment. How did she get involved in in the fight against the equal uh, Equal Rights Amendment specifically?
1: Well, I think it is a continual line. They presented in this movie as a pivot. But when my mother read what the Equal Rights Amendment says, which is equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged on account of sex, she realized that that would affect the U.S. military. And she was very concerned that America have a strong military defense. And at that time, there was still a draft. We were at war. Uh, Boys were dying in combat. And she saw that this would require Uh, the drafting of women and require women on the combat front lines. And that would weaken our military force. And as she liked to say, you know, there's no military force that the Americans are going to be fighting where they have women on the front
0: lines. Mm -hmm. So, Maybe give a, a, a lot of a lot of younger listeners and viewers won't know this because the Equal Rights Amendment, as we know, are, are, is is up again. It's being pushed for again by the Democrats. We had another guest on this show a few months ago to talk about the Equal Rights Amendment in its new form. But what were the odds that your mother was up against when she decided to tackle the Equal Rights Amendment? Because I remember so I interviewed her a couple of years before she passed away and she said I was up against two presidents, two first ladies, almost the entire Senate. So, so how, what were the, when she headed into this fight, what, what were the odds that she was facing?
1: They were enormous odds because the Equal Rights Amendment, um, in order to amend the Constitution, you need a supermajority of Congress and a supermajority of the states. It had already sailed through Congress and was on its way being ratified by the states when she started the fight. Um, the three presidents who opposed her were Nixon, Ford, and Carter. So note that they were Republican and Democrats because right. both the Republican and Democratic parties were in favor of this amendment. And then there was the news media, Hollywood stars and celebrities, uh, the whole pop culture that it is the time has come for this type of um, sex neutral society. Um, every, the, 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 there was a the the culture was completely opposed, and and so she rallied people who had not, you know, been involved before, and that's and she inspired women and gave them a voice, and they ran with it.
0: And so, how did she get from okay, the Equal right, uh, Rights Amendment is a threat; the entire political establishment of both parties is against me; the President of the United States is against me; I believe Hawaii. Um, uh, confirmed their support for the ERA, what, 30 minutes after the congressional vote? Like, states were falling like dominoes almost immediately after the ERA got passed. And then Phyllis Schlafly stepped in. And it's interesting because both Donald Critchlow, in his book, as well as Carol Felsenthal, basically state if Phyllis Schlafly hadn't stepped in, the Equal Rights Amendment would have passed. Um, there's just... So so. How how did she create this? How, how did, so how, how did, how did she beat this? It's so hard for a lot of people to think about, um, you know, w- w- the way she would refer to herself, right? A housewife from Alton stepped into the way of this oncoming train and stopped it. So how, how did she do it?
1: Well, it, it, it's nuts and bolts lobbying, which is you get people who are, who are actual voters in in state rep for state representative districts to go and talk to their representative it's really amazing how few people can impact a vote in within the state because most people never they don 't even know who their state rep is much right. less call them up on the phone or go to the state capitol and talk to them so if you get a handful of people to go to a representative in his in his office and talk to him that that is hugely impactful and learning how to do that kind of on the ground lobbying is very effective it's very effective today because people think well you know I'm just one lonesome voice out here mm-hmm. but what this shows is one lonesome voice can have a profound effect if you actually show up and lobby your representative because they do listen to the voters in their district.
0: So how did she create these networks? Obviously, her, her newsletter was extremely famous. Um, and, and then what, how did she achieve her very, very first victory, the very first state where the ERA lost when the feminists were, were sure it was going to win?
1: Well, so back then, and I know this is hard to believe now, but we only had a telephone and the U.S. postal mail, And so you could mail things out, but that was a little slow. You could call people, but that's one by one. There's no blast email type of things that we are so used to today to get the word out. It seems so um, uh, easy today. Uh, But, uh, I mean, we didn't even have fax machines back then. Um, But uh, what she did was to utilize a telephone tree where she would call ten people, and each of those ten people would call ten people, and each of those ten people would call ten people, and that kind of um, that was the kind of building a network of getting people involved, and uh, to whether it was to show up at a rally at a at a state capitol, or to call a state representative on this particular issue. So that is the nuts and bolts of. of of direct lobbying, which is what our representative democracy is all about.
0: So when did the feminists start to understand that the housewife from Alton and the legions of housewives that were following her leadership posed a real threat to something they thought was going to be a piece of cake?
1: Well, I think, um, when the, when the bandwagon started to slow down, they started to get more worried about it, but they certainly always thought that it could be passed and and I think they got worried when they passed an extension, and I think it was in 1978. Was when they pa- the the amendment was due to expire in 79. They passed a three year extension that took it to eight, 1982. But the last state to ratify was in 1977. The bandwagon had completely slowed down, and furthermore. Five states had voted to rescind their previous uh, ratification. And so the tide had turned. And what what my mother showed is that the more people learned about the amendment, the less they liked it. When they realized the consequences of, of, of what the words mean, they sounded simple, but the consequences were an enormous transfer of power to the federal government. The consequences would really hit the most vulnerable among, our, uh, among us, and particularly in schools, athletics, correctional institutions, women's shelters. That's when it really started to hit people that this was not a good idea.
0: So what were a few of her key arguments against the Equal Rights Amendment? Because she, would, she often said um, in, 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 in her books that one of the most brilliant things that the ERA supporters did was to call it the ERA because it's it's so hard to oppose. It's why even a lot of Republicans were like, maybe we're not a big fan of this, but whatever, right? We'll just vote for it. Um, you know, you got to give them something once in a while sort of thing. So how did she build her successful case against the ERA? What were her key arguments back then?
1: Well, the key argument was always the military. It was always the idea that women would be forcibly drafted and forcibly put into combat troops. And even today, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has said, Equality means women and men in equal numbers on combat front lines. So right. just try to envision that, that, that and and so using the words of the support orders of ERA was one of my mother's best tactics. In fact, I think she, she reprinted the now hand, the National mm-hmm. Organization for Women's Handbook. She reprinted and sold copies of it because she thought the ideas were so crazy that once people read what, what now wanted, they would be on Phyllis Schlafly's side.
0: Mm-hmm. So how, how important was abortion? In in this entire fight. Of course, partway through the fight against the ERA, Roe v. Wade kind of made abortion on demand a moot point. I know that the ERA would have guaranteed not only the right to abortion, that was sort of an inevitable consequence, but also to a taxpayer-funded abortion. To what extent did, did abortion figure specifically into the ERA fight?
1: So abortion built as a as an argument. It was not it was not immediately the argument on it. And um and in 1973, when Roe v. Wade was decided, for a lot of, of people, abortion was seen as a Roman Catholic issue. Well, right. the Catholics were opposed to abortion, but other people said, no, no, and it really had to build uh, and and build with the faith-based communities uh, in their opposition to abortion. And so the crucial thing that my mother did, and my mother was Roman Catholic, but she, her organization built on, the re, on various different religions and their moral outlook on life and their realization that, that they were also fundamentally opposed to abortion. And so she built this coalition of Catholics, Evangelicals, Baptists, uh, Church of Christ, um, Church of Latter-day Saints, Orthodox Jews, she built this coalition of people who said, no, we're going to take a moral stand on this. And that's and that's what brought the fight over abortion into, into focus for these other groups, which at first didn't really want to align themselves with Catholics because people didn't have cross alignments among the religions back then. And My mother, when she would have her her, uh, conferences, she would say to her people, uh, her followers, you may believe the person you're sitting next to will not be saved, but you're going to work together on this issue.
0: When did abortion become one of her bigger issues? So when I I interviewed her back in in 2014, she talked about how the pro-life issue was really one of the issues that animated her. And that, in addition to, well, she she told Carol Felsenthal that her idea of a vacation was a Republican convention. And when when I when I interviewed her, she said that from 1976 onwards, they worked state by state to have a pro life plank nailed down on the Republican platform. Uh, she said, uh, and I'm quoting here: "It was a knockdown, dragout fight from convention to convention." But she said, "We've nailed down that pro-life plank and never changed it." And in, in essence, uh, what she and some other pro-life leaders, and there weren't a lot of them at that time, did was essentially turn the GOP into what you see now, which is is a pro-life party. Uh, it's very difficult to get a nomination in the GOP if you're not pro-life, just like it's now difficult to get a nomination in the Democratic Party if you aren't pro-abortion. So when did abortion become a real animating issue for her, and how did it become something that was one of her focuses in addition to all of her other activism?
1: It was always an important issue for her, and it was, more more importantly, it was, for my father, it was the single most important issue, he thought. He thought there was no other issue uh, on on it. But I took time for, I mean, the Supreme Court on Roe v. Wade was a 7-2 to decision. I mean it was not it was seen um, as well it, this is where the world is going this is what women want i mean it i mean it was only controversial in 1973 among a minority of people it a lot of it had to build uh, as and and it particularly built as the science developed and we and the more pictures that we got of the baby developing in the womb was really the turning point to change people's minds about what abortion is and the consequences of it. And, and so back in the 1970s, there was a fight in both parties, both the Republicans and the Democrats. I mean, that's shown in episode three with uh, Gloria Steinem on the Democratic uh, uh, convention floor. But it was a fight in both parties because the democrats were traditionally the party for catholics and the catholics opposed abortion in fact there was a presidential candidate um, in uh, the democratic party um, was her name barbara mccormick do you remember that in 1976 who ran on a pro-life plank now i don't think this series is going to be showcasing her (laughs) the way they showcase shirley chisholm uh, as running in '72, but but that candidacy was about making the Democratic Party pro-life, and so then on the other hand, you have my mother working in the Republican Party to make it pro-life, and then it got you know it it became an issue that split the parties so fundamentally that that for many people is um, is the deciding factor in whether they're a Republican or Democrat today.
0: Now you mentioned your father, and you know typically these interviews that you do, I'm sure, are mostly about your mother and her legacy. But because the series does smear him, um, I wanted just to take a moment to talk about him. Um, I thought that that Carol Felsenthal, in her book uh, "The Sweetheart of the South Majority," did a wonderful job uh, portraying him. She talks about how their love letters back and forth were often these like extensive policy papers. Their correspondence back and forth while they were dating—it's—it's quite possibly the wonkiest. Uh, romance that I've ever read about in my life. But she was like made it so clear that although they were obviously very attracted to each other, one of the key things was that they set each other's brains on fire. Like they had all these these long debates, and 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 she was so incredibly intelligent that it kind of knocked him over. Um, Tell us a bit about your father and about their relationship, since I thought that was the most offensive slander. I thought no, there was many slanders, but that was the one I found the most offensive
1: it was very offensive because my father was an honorable man and my father he, yes he adored my mother they had they had a mutual appreciation relationship my father fully supported my mother in every way intellectually financially emotionally and spiritually they were on the same page and and the idea that that he was an insensitive brute is such a um, mistreatment of his, of his honorable life. He actually loved being called Mr. Phyllis. He thought he (laughs) took it, he had enormous sense of humor and he liked to say, I regret that I have but one wife to give to my country.
0: (laughs) I hadn't actually heard that line. That's a pretty, that's a pretty phenomenal line i uh, i wanted to ask you you a personal question as well i've read a lot of the reviews now i think most of the the the, the pro-life and pro family oriented news sites have have come out to condemn this series the daily caller live action uh we're doing this for life site news uh the stream you name it um what was it like for you and for your siblings personally when this came out because obviously i'm sure that in some ways this this series the series must have been quite hurtful
1: well, I reached out many times to talk to the producers and the writers to get, you know, so that they could hear the truth and, ha- and have the evidence of this remarkable life. But the, the writer, uh, the producer of the show said recently that she had no desire to talk to anybody who actually knew Phyllis Schlafly, no desire to, to have evidence or the truth. She had the story that she wanted to write and she didn't want to be distracted by, by, uh, by facts. Uh, and, and so I, I, I had a pretty good idea that it wasn't going to be a favorable look. What shocked me was that, I mean, I knew they were going to go after her. What shocked me is that how many of her supporters and her family they go after and malign. Not only my father, but my father's sister and, the, and some of the women who, who worked with my mother, they have maligned them and treated them and they've, um, first of all, made them into characters that they were not. Uh, Second of all, um, you know, put them, you know, put words in their mouths that they never would have said. Uh, And, but most importantly, treating them as kind of ignorant, shallow people, who were led along by this, and not giving them the full characterization that that really these wonderful people deserve. The women who followed my mother were no shrinking violets. My mother made leaders, and she encouraged people to become leaders, uh, and they did. And they were forceful people who wrote books, who got out, who started their own organizations. And that was That's really the success of my mother was figuring out how to expand her reach by duplicating herself across the country with these wonderful um, leaders in their state organizations. And um, I mean, just as a as one example, they 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 have a lot of fictional characters that are allegedly my mother's supporters because they don't want to take on the real people, but they do one real person named Rosemary Thompson. And they, they make her into comic relief, which is just not who Rosemary was. I mean, she was, she, was a, she was a real intellectual and a force and a writer who then later on got a high position in the Reagan administration. I, I, I just don't know why they weren't interested in this fabulous story of these women. And, um, but I guess it's because they wanted to make heroines out of the feminists instead.
0: Do we have any idea? Uh, I was curious about this, and I figured if somebody had heard you would have, if Gloria Steinem has said anything about this series, I believe she's 84, 85 now. I saw her once at the Women's March back in the day. But of course, she is the hero of the series, right? Um she's 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 pushing for abortion nonstop. When she gets angry about abortion, it's because, you know, she's overcome with the righteousness of what abortion is and why it's so necessary. There's like the the sort of like a founding myth of, of Gloria Steinem's life where you see her preparing for that abortion. She got in 1957, she actually uh, dedicated her 2015 memoir to the, the abortionist who, uh, who killed her baby back in, in 1957. Do we know what she thinks of the series?
1: I've not seen any comment from her on it, but you're right. She is, she is treated as a heroine. Uh, particularly you see in episode four at the end where she has her differences with Betty Friedan, but it's Gloria who who makes it up to betty and uh, makes betty feel better and and gloria comes off as um as as the as the star of the show but you know she's still alive and the people they malign are all dead and yeah. one of the things that you know once somebody dies you can say anything about them there's no legal recourse so it is up to us to defend the lives that they see, that who have passed away that they seek to malign
0: What have other members of your family so far uh, said about this film? Because I I do imagine it must've been very difficult or or are they just avoiding watching it entirely?
1: Well, I haven't talked to them since I've seen some of the episodes and you know, there's still some more episodes to go, but you know, in episode four, they, they, uh, I get a, um, a treatment in that episode. Have you seen it? Episode
0: four? I saw the, I saw the piece of her with her daughter. I was wondering if that was supposed to be you.
1: So, so allegedly, um, my mother throws me in the swimming pool and holds me under water in order to uh, um, overcome my fears or something. It's 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 really a misunderstanding of my my mother because they try to show an inner life of hers that that didn't that is all wrong because the episode the scene before shows what looks like my father bullying my mother and then my mother turns around and bullies me. Well, nothing could be further from the truth and that misunderstands the core beliefs of my mother. I mean it, it was impossible to her for her to to behave that way for my father to do that or to for her to behave that way. It wasn't how she it wasn't how she operated as a mother and it wasn't how she treated anyone else. And I always loved to swim. I never not swam. <laughs>
0: So, because I have I have you on here, I can't I can't help but ask: Would you share with our listeners some of your your actual personal memories of, of both the ERA fight, which I'm sure was operating on sort of the peripheries of your memory to some degree, but growing up in this 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 crazy household where? You know, you're like, I remember when I, when I bought Reagan's diaries, when they came out, what, this must've been, this must've been in 2005 or something like that. When the edited versions got released and reading about your mom, I think the first time I ever read about your mom actually was in Ronald Reagan's diaries, right? So she was this extraordinary national figure yet. She had six children, a wonderful marriage. Would you mind sharing some, some personal memories of what that was all like? Cause I, now that I have you here, I can't, I can't resist asking. Sure.
1: I'm the youngest of six children. So by the time the ERA fight came around, a lot of my siblings were already off at college and uh, and I was at home. And my mother always, her office was always at home. Her office was at the center of our house. There are no doors on her office. So it was a, a beehive of activity and she we could hear everything going on in her office and and she could hear everything that was going on in the rest of the house and and it was a free flow of information of of phones ringing of um and i considered my childhood to be extraordinarily exciting because there was always something happening i and it was it was quite a education for me mm-hmm. uh i you know i mean for example our um home phone number was listed in the phone book. So it was anybody could call us any time of the day. And we always answered the phone. And so sometimes they were crank calls and sometimes they were newspaper calls and sometimes they were supporters, but there was, there was it was lively. And, um, and that made it, uh, that made it, um, um, so when I wasn't really on the periphery in the fight in the seventies, I was in the thick of it because it was, it was really much more interesting than going to school.
0: <laughs> Do you ever remember there being a sense that your family was different from other people's family and asking your mother or your father about that?
1: Well, when, when, you, when you're interviewed and photographed for Newsweek at age eight, you already know <laughs> that there's something different about your family. And that's what happened to me.
0: so, one of the other things I, I, I wanted I wanted to ask you is is just so that all of our, our viewers and our listeners get this straight because I really do want to persuade people not to to, to watch this series because it is a it is a it's a vicious smear job uh, against people and 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 Jonathan the
1: problem with Hollywood is these images last forever. And that's, oh, and so, you know, people years from now say, oh, well, look at this. This must look pretty entertaining. So we have a website called org, and not only do we have great articles like the one you wrote uh, and some other people who have written some fabulous articles, um, we also have real live video of the real Phyllis Schlafly Mm. on the website. So you can see what she really was like and not the um, caricature. That the Hollywood
0: actress does. No, I, and anybody who doesn't think that the those debates are still entertaining, I urge you go to YouTube. I've watched her debate with Betty Friedan, her conversations with William F. Buckley. Uh, the Eagle Forum has about a thirty-minute summary of her life that should get expanded at some point, but is very good. Features a lot of those interviews just to make sure that anybody listening uh, really understands this. We've covered some of the inaccuracies, but maybe run through. Uh, a list uh, of the major things that not only they get wrong, but based on the reviews in the New Yorker, the New York times, we already know some of the upcoming mistakes. We don't know the details of them, but we do know uh, what they got wrong. So maybe just run through that list for, for the listeners.
1: Well, let's start from the very beginning of the show. They show my mother parading around in a bikini on, uh, at a fashion show at a, at a dinner. My mother was, um, it's just not possible for her to ever parade herself She was a woman of integrity and dignity. And she, and I believe the movie is trying to make her into a sex object and to sexualize her in order to, to diminish on her intellectual capabilities because she didn't use and flaunt sex. It's not possible. So then they show a congressman, you know, kissing her and touching her. So also not possible because my mother uh, very much uh, uh, prescribed to the, what's known as the Pence rule, where Mm. you're never alone with a person who is not your spouse in any kind of situation. And I can attest that she very much, she never would have been alone with a man who was not her husband. And I know that because frequently she took me as her chaperone to some of these events that my father didn't want to go to because my mother would not dine alone with a man who was not her husband or be alone or let a man touch her or flaunt her her body out. Um, I mean, it's just, it's not who she was. And I think that really tries to diminish her character. Because, I mean, fundamental to my mother's life was a lifetime commitment to one person. And she mm. fully lived that.
0: Well, that's what, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't she name the Eagle Forum after Eagles because Eagles made for life?
1: Yes. Eagles made for life. They did get that right.
0: So I guess, final question, uh, can you direct uh, the listeners and the viewers to, uh, one, to sources of real information about your mother. to anything you want to recommend for them to read, to catch up on. And then maybe let's restate the website there uh, that they can go to pinpoint all of these mistakes.
1: The mistakes are on mrsamerica.org. The organization that my mother founded in the early 1970s with her dedicated group of female volunteers is called Eagle Forum. Our website is eagleforum.org. We are still thriving today. We have a Washington office. Our headquarters is in Alton, Illinois. And we um, publish a, a monthly newsletter. We have daily emails. And the website is chocker block full of information on all the issues, because I think what's important to realize about my mother is that she was not a single issue person. She was interested in everything. I think there's hardly a political issue out there that she didn't make an opinion or a statement on and become engaged on. And she had a 70 year career of, of writing and it's really quite full of her philosophy and it never changed. It, I mean, she, she honed her, her, her issues, she honed her beliefs, and, and she was able to broadcast them effectively.
0: Why didn't President Trump speak at her funeral after she passed away?
1: Uh, President Trump uh, gave remarks prior to her funeral starting. My mother had a traditional Roman Catholic funeral and uh and at a traditional funeral you don't do um eulogies and speechifying like that right
0: speech well thank you so much for joining us to to walk through all this we really appreciate you taking the time
1: it is my pleasure jonathan thank you for having me on
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Anne Corey Schlafly-Corey, the daughter of Phyllis Schlafly, discussing her mother's life and legacy and the lies of the miniseries Mrs. America. Thanks so much for joining us this week. If you head over to lifesightnews.com and click on the podcast tab, you can check out past episodes. If you like this YouTube video, if you subscribe to this show, you'll get alerts Uh, for the next episodes coming out. This show does air every Wednesday. Thanks so much for joining us, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.